you may be seated. Um, when I was in seminary, uh, one of the things that some of our professors would try to drive home, uh, and, and I think they were right, they, they would teach us that, that we have to be careful with every word we speak when we're preaching the Word of God. I, I agree with that assessment. Uh, in other words, they say you don't want to deliver the Word of God in an inappropriate way. And they would give us kind of examples of what would be inappropriate. They said, you know, be careful not to be too jokey from the pulpit. Now, they weren't saying be devoid of any kind of humor, praise God, uh, not to be devoid from any kind of humor, but, but it's not comedy hour, all right? Don't get up there and just bust out, you know, some, some Joshua jokes or something, you know, the, the whole time. And so I, I certainly agree with that. The idea is um, this is preaching. It's, it's, it's serious. It's, 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 it's taking the word of God and reoralizing it to people who need to hear the life-giving word of God. So there is an essence of seriousness for sure about it. Another thing they would say is under, uh, under no circumstances are you ever to use any form of scatology from the pulpit. Now, you know what scat is, ology. You can use your imagination of what that is. In other words, let me just say it this way. Don't ever use, it's never appropriate to use bathroom humor from the pulpit, all right? That's, that's one of the rules, all right? Uh, some of you look shocked by that. That's, uh, that's actually a good thing, all right? Uh, so don't use potty humor from the pulpit, pretty good thing. I, I agree completely with, with that. But what happens when you come to a text of scripture like the one that's before us, uh, the story of Ehud that is written by the original author under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and it is written to be a humorous, and it is littered with potty humor. Okay, what do you do with that? Well, some, of course, and I found even commentators skip over it, all right? They, they just forget about it. But for us as evangelicals, that's a little bit hard for us to do, right? Because we really do believe that all of the Word of God is inspired by God, and that all of it, all of it, even strange Passages like this are profitable both for life and for godliness, for salvation and for us growing in the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. So we don't want to just jump over it, but certainly we need to be careful on how we, we preach it. But as careful as I need to be in preaching it, you need to be equally as careful in listening to it. Uh, let, me, let me give you some encouragement. Don't listen to this passage uh, as, as a modern um, American, all right? But listen to it rather as an ancient Israelite. If you listen to it like a modern American, either one, you're going to be completely appalled and disgusted and, and appalled that the, Holy Spirit, that, that the Word of God would, would talk about such things, uh, or you're going to be like the rest of uh, modern Americans and you're going to laugh like crazy uh, at things maybe you shouldn't be laughing at, all right? So instead, what we need to do is we need to listen more like ancient Israelites. We need to, to, to consider what the people who first heard this would, ha, would have thought. Think like the people who actually went through these trials, went through these difficulties. Imagine being oppressed by a pagan king and, and, and having the food that's supposed to be on your table to feed for your kids that you earn completely stripped and seeing your children on the point of starving to death and going through this for some 18 years. If we approach the story that way, then instead of being grossed out by the story, then we find great enjoyment and satisfaction from it. Because 
here's the deal. This story really is not about a funny fat king. It's, it's really not. And it's really not about some really awkward bathroom moments that we're going to see in just a couple minutes. Instead, this story really is about, here it is, here it is. Listen to this. If you're trying to figure out what the story is about, it's about salvation. It's about salvation. More specifically, it's about God's saving grace to undeserving people. Did you hear that? God's saving grace. God saving undeserving people. And so what we want to do this morning is we want to focus specifically on that. And I want to show you three aspects of this grace that saves undeserving sinners. All right, three things we want to see. First of all, we see in the text that God's grace proves greater. God's grace proves greater. Now, if I were to answer that, proves greater than what? Proves greater than anything, okay? However, what I want to do is there's two specific things that our author directs us to. First of all, God's grace proves greater than what? Greater than all your troubles. Greater than all your troubles. Uh, This story begins, I don't know why that's clicking. That's me somehow. I I just don't know what it is, so bear with us. Um, But what we know is that in the very beginning of this chapter, uh, what we find is Israel is in big trouble great trouble. The very last verse of the former section on Othniel that we looked at last week, uh, we found that Othniel died, and then immediately this chapter begins in verse 12, and the people of Israel uh, again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, last week we talked about what that evil was. The evil that they took part in consisted of two acts of sin, two sinful acts. It took part of, first of all, them forgetting, and then them serving. They forgot God, how they, they were no longer living in light of what they knew about God, in, in, in light of what they knew that God was commanding of them. They just did what was right in their own eyes, and then they begin to turn from him and begin to pursue a relationship with false gods. So that was the evil act. And whenever we see them do that, then God responds. How does he respond? Well, he responds in anger. And what he does is, is we see this very next uh, line, he strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel. They sin against him. He raises up a pagan king to come and to oppress his people. But remember something, his anger towards his people is is not anger out of hatred, but it's anger out of what? Out of his love for them his jealous love for them. He's insanely, jealously in love for his people and for their response of love in return. And so what does he do? By his grace, he puts them in trouble, allows them to be in trouble so that they'll hate where they are. They'll see the error of their ways and then they'll call out for mercy and grace so that God can ultimately save them. And so what we find here is they are in trouble. In fact, they're in greater trouble than they were during the time of Othniel because note the next part, verse 13, and he says he, he's talking about uh, the, the king of the Moabites, he gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and they went and they defeated Israel. So this time, they're not just against one king, they're against three kings. They're in big, big trouble, and things begin to get out of hand, and things begin to get really, really bad. In fact, we see how bad it is by the next sentence. It says, and they, meaning these three kings, it says, they, meaning the the alliance of the kings, took possession of the city of Palms. Now, why is that important? Well, the city of Palms is Jericho. Does Jericho sound familiar? Jericho was the place in Joshua that we studied. It, it, was, it was the pinnacle of what it looked like when God's people entrust themselves fully and completely to God. When they entrust themselves fully and completely to God, what does God do? God does the work. God literally took the city of Jericho and gave it to his, his people. 
Now what's happening? The city that he gave to his people when they trusted him, he's now taken away and given it into the hands of the kings. Not one king, but three kings. They found themselves in big trouble. This oppression is bigger than anything they've known to this particular point. Now, if you were one of the original audiences and you were reading this whole thing, this whole book together, you would come from Othniel and you would say, okay, here's the conclusion. God has proven himself faithful. God has proven that his grace is greater when I'm in trouble with one king oppressing us. But here's the second question. All right, but we're in bigger trouble now. We know he can do that, but can he do this? One king, no problem. But three kings, is God able to deliver us when we're this neck deep in problem? Now, just to answer the question, in case you're kind of wondering, the answer is yes, okay? The answer is yes. However, they're thinking just like we're thinking. Are, are they not? They're, they're thinking like we do. Uh, we kind of, kind, of, uh, kind of rate trouble, right? Like there's a little bit of trouble over there that we don't even bother God with. No big deal. You know, I can handle that. Then there's the troubles where we're like, man, God, I'm going to need your help on this. Then there are the troubles that are so steep and so big we don't even, we're not even completely convinced that God can get a hold of that trouble, right? We're not, we don't say that, but it's exactly what we think. When the trouble's bigger, our faith begins to kind of crumble and begins to fall apart. Let me, let me explain as a pastor how I've done this, how I, I, I do this. Maybe you do the same thing. Somebody comes up to me and says, Pastor Mike, we've had all these medical bills. You know the struggles that we've had. We're in debt. It's really... And it's really of no fault of their own. I'm just going to speak of them. They just had a lot of debt. And you know how the whole insurance thing is right now. And they're like, we're, we're really struggling, but we've tried to be faithful. And he goes, and, and what, the way we look at it is we're about $200 a month short of being able to pay all of our bills faithfully. We've done everything we've could. We've stripped everything down, and, and we're short about $200. And at that point, uh, your, your pastor, this is how I respond. Brother, that 200 bucks ain't nothing, man. Listen, God can get in there. You're, you're, God that you serve right, is a father that owns the cattle on a thousand hills. And I start quoting like all these like Old Testament things, right? There's not a need that you have that he cannot meet. Press down, shake it together, running over. And you start you know, using all these really encouraging things. He goes, dude, I cannot even wait the way to see how it is that God's gonna meet this need. You and I are gonna be looking back at this and go, man, God is so faithful. Hey, I wanna be the first one that you call when God ultimately meets this need. We cool? Awesome. Now, here's part of the reason why I'm so confident. I'm so confident because I know they have that need, but I also know that in my bank account, if things aren't working out and if God doesn't come through, if my wife and I have to write a check, we could probably write a check to cover that at least for this month. Do you see that? Not a big deal. God can do it. Why? Because I can do it. Now, different kind of group, different situations. Somebody comes up to you and says, hey, Pastor Mike, listen, you know, we've really struggled. We have all these medical bills and we've got to pay these things right now. If not, and I don't know if this would happen or not, but we owe $50,000. And if we don't come up with $50,000 over the next month, our business is going to go bankrupt. We're going to lose our home. We're going to lose our car. All of a sudden, I'm not so rah rah e anymore. You, you, you notice that? I mean, I'm not so, hey, man, I'm not sitting there talking about uh, the God who owns a cattle on a thousand hills. I'm sitting back going, man, that's a big one, dude. Whoa, man, I feel for you. I, man, if I was in that situation, I don't even know what I would do. Very little talk of God because I don't want to put God on the spot. I, I, don't want, I don't want them to look because the truth of the matter is, look, I know that God's cool with 200 bucks. I can even help out. But $50,000, are you kidding me? What are we going to do? But you see, isn't that the way that we respond oftentimes? 
We look that way as though he can do this, but I'm not sure that he can do that. What God is going to show them is, hey, listen, whether it's one king or three kings, it doesn't matter. Whether it's $200 or whether it's $50,000, it doesn't matter. Listen, this isn't the first time that we've learned this lesson. It may seem new to you, but it's not new to you. In chapter one, just three weeks ago, we talked about wooden and iron chariots. So the people believed that God could give them the victory over wooden chariots. But when iron chariots came into the scene, when, when great difficulty beyond their imagination came up, all of a sudden they lose faith and they thought, well, God can do that, but we don't know if he can do that. And now we're in the same place. They need to be reminded, but you know what? Some of us have to be reminded. Because some of the same people who were back three weeks ago hearing that message who said amen to it, that God is the God of iron chariots, or the same people today that you find yourself in difficulty, that you don't think this is any, any normal $200 one king wooden chariot type of, of difficulty, this is iron chariot $50,000 three king alliance type of trouble that I'm in, and you're wondering whether God can do it, and the scriptures are just letting you know, absolutely, God can do it. He can do it. Isn't that a good word? And, and I'm, I'm sitting back and I'm thinking to myself, some people are like, man, you know, I don't know if that really connects with me right now. It may not connect with you, but I guarantee there are some of you who are here that you are neck deep in some of the greatest difficulties that you can ever imagine. And you wonder if God's grace is sufficient enough to rescue you from it. And the Bible says, yes, he can. All right, so it is greater. What is it greater? It's greater than all our troubles. Here's the second thing. It's greater than all of our suffering. Now, it's not hard to feel bad for God's people. We're going to read through this. It's not hard to feel bad about them. Uh, you know, because the, I think we don't maybe immediately because the author doesn't give us a whole lot of detail. He doesn't let us know that their kids are possibly starving. He doesn't let us know that they're eking out a meager existence. And they're doing it over a period of 18 years. doesn't tell us any of that. But, you know, you and I, I think, I think if, if you're kind of normal-ish, all right, let's just use normal-ish. If you're kind of normal-ish, then what you do is you have compassion on people who suffer at the hands of somebody else, especially when they're innocent, right? When you see somebody suffering at the hands of another person, that person's innocent, they didn't bring it on themselves. Man, you and I have great compassion and want to extend great mercy and great grace to that person to be able to help them out. Where the, this great deep well of compassion seems to run out rather quickly is for those people who bring on the suffering for themselves, right? That, that's where that begins to dry up. But I want to remind you that the Israelites here are not innocent. They're guilty. God's not extending grace to well-deserving people who are suffering at no fault of their own. God is extending grace to people who are dead dog guilty. I mean, are, are you seeing this? And this is why for you and I, uh, we don't feel any... Here, here's, here's our compassion. Here's our mercy our mercy is constrained to the innocent. That's why we feel, but we have very little for the guilty. That's why we feel bad for the family who's got, who gets robbed, but really don't feel bad when they catch the robbers. They catch the robbers, they get, they get booked. We're not sitting back there and go, man, my heart bleeds for you, man, for robbing those people and getting caught and justice being done. We don't bleed at all for that, right? It's the same thing when you hear somebody murdered. You feel immensely horrible for the one murder, for the family who was murdered, but do you sit there and begin to shed tears unless it's maybe a family member for the person who gets death row because of, their, their, because of the death, the first-degree murder that they committed? Not very often. In the same way for the rapist, and as horrible as this is, even to be able to say, for, for the young lady who was raped, you, you're, you can't even imagine 
the sorrow and the pain for them. And your heart and compassion goes out for them. But for the rapist who gets basically life in prison, do you feel any? No, what do you do? You sit back and go, man, they're getting what they deserve. Here's what's amazing about God's grace. Is God's grace is greater. See, there are some of you who are suffering perhaps of no fault of your own because of a spouse or a child or an employer or somebody. You're suffering. And what's so great is God's grace wants to reach out to you and save you in the midst of your trouble. He knows that you're in pain. He knows that. He sees that. You need to understand. He knows that you're there. And his grace is sufficient for you to help you in the time of your suffering. But here's what even blows our mind all the more. For you who are like me. See, some are in that first category. Some are suffering at the hands of somebody else and they're innocent. But all of us are in the second category. All of us at one point or another are suffering because of our own sin and guilt. And here's what's amazing about God's grace. It doesn't stop at the innocent. It pours over into the guilty. It's a good thing that it does. Because if not, we would all be most to be pitied because we've all liars, cheats, thieves, adulterers, right? Blasphemers. But God's grace is greater. What, what a wonderful truth in the word of God. Let me show you a second thing. Not only is God's grace greater, or proves greater, but God's grace reserves glory. Now, in the first point there, what we saw just in the first, first part there is we saw the first two steps in the cycle that we've been talking about the cycle of their sin. Uh, they begin to sin and rebel against God. Uh, God raises up a pagan king against them, and they are oppressed. Now we're going to see stage three and stage four that we've talked about the last couple of weeks, and we see it very clearly in verse 15. Notice, he is going to do two things. The people are going to cry out to God for mercy, and then God is going to raise up a deliverer for them and deliver his people. Verse 15 says both. Then the people cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. Now, when we read that, there's nothing, as, as modern readers, nothing really sticks out as strange. Um, however, if you were an ancient Israelite reading it, immediately there's strangeness here. And, and I think it's found right here. See the word Benjaminite and then left-handed? Here's, here's what's kind of, here's some irony here. Uh, Benjaminite is just basically saying that this particular man, this, this leader, Ehud, uh, was a part of the tribe of Benjamin, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. You guys got that, right? Not hard to figure out. One of the 12 tribes of Israel. But the name um, Benjamin itself literally means son of the right hand. Son of the right hand. Now, it's son of the right hand. And whenever we look through the word of God, Old Testament, New Testament, whenever we see the right hand mentioned, there's always positive connotations with it. It's always talking about the power of the right hand or the position of the right hand. In fact, we see the word, we see God himself is seen in the Bible as swearing by his right hand. Uh, he has pleasures by his right hand and his chosen one sits by his right hand. But here's what's ironic. In the midst of all this right-hand theology, immediately God raises up not a right-handed Savior, but a left-handed Savior, okay? So we know that's got to be significant. Would you agree? I mean, because it's not as though they were like, and this is Jesus, the Son of God, the right-handed Savior. No, we, we, don't, we don't read that. We don't, I, from what I know, I don't, read, I don't see the Bible ever saying that anybody else is right-handed or left-handed or made the distinction between the two. So we know it's got to be significant. Here's the difficulty. We don't exactly know what that significance is. In fact, some very great commentators and theologians far brighter than me, they've kind of disagreed. But let me take you through both of what might be significant about this. First of all, it might be significant to the weak. This truth, this left-handed Savior might be significant to the weak. Let me, let me explain that. 
Uh, the word left-handed there, the Hebrew word, literally means shut or restricted. Now, because of that, what some have suggested or some believe is that Ehud uh, doesn't have much of a right hand. He's not left-handed because he was born left-handed. He, he, he has to be left-handed because he doesn't have much of a right hand. It's withered, it's diseased, it's paralyzed. And so, so now he has to rest on his weaker hand. And so what would happen is if we were the original readers, we would be shocked that God, trying to raise up a leader, you would think you'd want the strongest leader you could get, yes? Because we look for strong guys. Old Testament again, uh, they need the first king. Who is it? A guy that's a foot taller than everybody else. It seems like when, when, when they go looking for the next king of Israel because of his fall, they're looking to David's brothers, and they're all bigger and greater than he is, and there's almost a disappointment when it falls on David, the, the harp player, right? You, you look at that, and you're thinking, this, this doesn't vibrate. So for that, that historical view of this, they're thinking to themselves, we're very surprised that God would have chosen a man with really no right hand instead as left-handed, we're surprised. But should you and I be surprised that this is the one that God chose? Not at all, right? Because we have the teaching of 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 through 27. There, Paul tells us, he says, listen, that God chooses the weaker things of this world to confound the wise. Right? He, he has a thing for weaker things. You and I are like, hey, get rid of it. You know what God says? Hey, this is exactly what I want to use. This is, he says, the people that I've chosen for salvation and the people that I've chosen to do my work, they're usually, catch this, this is gonna be encouraging to some of you, they're average and below average. I know some of you are appalled by that. How dare you call me average or below average? But you who know that you are, that's, there's something rejoicing in that, right? You're like, Awesome. That's God, you, I, I know. L- listen, listen to how Paul says it. He says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were noble in birth. Why does God choose such people like this? Here's why. Because he wants to reserve all the glory for himself. Uh, l- let me ask you this. If they get the victory with this lamed arm, right-armed guy who's left-handed with, in light of all of the right-hand theology that we know, if he's able to bring the people victory, does the left-hander get the, get the glory or does the God who raised him up get the glory? The God who raised him up got the glory, right? You know, it's interesting to me because there are so many people who, I love this, I'll go to them and say, hey man, have you considered doing this in our church, maybe teaching or teaching a small group or, or t- leading or going on, a, on, a, um, um, on this trip, this mission trip, leading it up? And this is what we hear almost all the time. I, if I had a quarter, literally, or a penny for every time, our debt would be paid off. I just wanna let you know. Here's kind of how it works. Hey brother, would you consider doing this, maybe praying about it? Oh man, I can't do that. I can't do that, why? Well man, listen, I don't speak well. Uh, I, I don't lead well. I'm more of a follower. I can't do that. I don't really have the knowledge. I can't really go and share my faith with other people because I don't know all the argumentation that, that my friends are gonna have and all the scientific revelations and truths that I can use for, for good argumentation to, to, to prove the existence of God and all these things. And, and I always just get a smile on my face because what they're trying to do is to convince me and themselves that they're not the type that God uses when the more they speak, the more evidence proves that they are the very ones that God wants to use, right? It's just like Moses. Is, Moses is like, oh, I, I can't deliver them. I, I can't speak. I can't. God's like, quiet. You've made the case. Go. You're exactly the type of person that I ultimately want to use. And, and for me, I got I to let you know, I'm at best, I'm average, in everything, all right? I had all kinds of learning disabilities, and you, you 
This is probably no surprise to you. Uh, if you go here, all kinds of learning disabilities going through school. My, my kids were sitting there, and the, the teachers are like, I, I don't know if we can even teach him. So we're going to the special classes, going to all that. Thank you very much. I mean, great difficulty. I am, I am at, with shoes on, average male height. With shoes on. My tall ones with inserts. Standing on my toes. All right, there. All right. Average looks, I know, honey, uh, she's, she's blind. She doesn't know. Don't tell her. All right, legally blind. She's gone. Praise Jesus. All right, legally blind. But for all of us, for all of us who are left-handers, um, all of us who scored so low on the SAT, we don't want anybody to ever know what we scored on it. For us who never got picked on the teams, you were always there against the fence, kicking it, right? And you're sitting there, you go, okay, I Yes, we'll take them. You know it's really bad happened to me. You know it's really bad when you get to the end and they're like, no, we're good. We don't need any more. You take them. You know it's bad. When you look at that and that's how you feel and God sits there and says, this is the very first person I wanna pick. Listen, some of you are on the sidelines because you've bought into some kind of lie that you cannot be used of God. You are the very type of person God wants to use because if he can use you, which he will, if you allow him, he'll get all the glory. Second thing, though, and here's the other side of it. It could be talking about weakness, but it also could be talking about strength. So it could be that the mentioning of his left hand actually doesn't mean that he's weak. It means that he's strong. And, and the reason for that is in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 2, there's the idea of being left-handed there again. But the idea of being left-handed means to use the left hand. Uh, let, let me kind of explain kind of the context. What's going on there is that there's a group of Benjaminites, same thing, who were relatives of King Saul, and they defected to David to help him in the war. And this is what it says about them. They were armed with bows, able to shoot arrows or sling stones, right-handed or left-handed. So these guys were warriors. You actually do some research, and you find out that these Benjaminite warriors could use both because as little kids, when they found out perhaps they were right-handed— they would restrain, there's that word, they would restrain the right hand. They would use the left hand so that they would become strong in their left hand to the point that they could fight either way, all right? Either, either way, right hand or left hand. I mean, they're sitting there in battle, just like the prince's bride, if you've ever seen it. Ha-ha, why are you laughing? Because I am not right-handed. And then they throw it to the left, and, and then they fight with the left as well, okay? Some of you know that, some of you don't, all right? I didn't even have that in the notes. That was just extra, Dan. For you. All right. So, so, this, so it could be showing that strength. If they're talking about the strength of this guy, then the question is, what's, what's the point for us? Well, guess what? You really smart people, very few that you are, you very unbelievably good-looking people. Jared and Whitney Lamar are not here. Um, you, you incredibly gifted, gifted people that you are, you are, you are a rarity. And I got to tell you, when I first heard Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians, I, so, I felt so bad for my best friend, Jamie. Because Jamie had it all. He could do music. He could play sports. He could do everything. He was incredibly intelligent. And I kept thinking to himself, oh, man, I'm, I'm sorry. This text seems like God can't use you. You know, I just feel bad for you. Or, or I, you know, want to throw it at him. Oh, yeah, you may have a lot of stuff going on, but God wants to use me, not you, you smart, intelligent, healthy, good-looking man. Right? And so that's kind of how you, how you feel. But here's the idea. If you fall in that latter court category, here's good news. God can use you, too. In fact, what he wants to do is he wants to use the things that you've spent so much training in, that you've spent so much time on, that you've spent so much time becoming an expert in all of that stuff. And look, he wants you to use it for his glory in the propagation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want you to think about that. 
Some of you are immensely good with finance. Some of you are amazing at organization and structure. You're amazing. You have all these gifts, but if you look at it and you look at the church, sometimes you're like, well, there's nursery workers, welcoming at the front door, ushers. I don't know how this works with this. This is what I'm saying to you. God wants to use what you have for his glory. You say, how does he get the glory? Because he's the one who gave you that ability. If you can make money, make money for the propagation of the church. If you can organize and structure, then organize and structure whatever it is that needs to be organized and structured for the glory of God. So both in our weaknesses and our strengths, when God uses them, who gets the glory? God, God. Third thing, and we'll close out with this. You guys still with me? Third thing. All right, two of you, that's good. So if you go to sleep. All right, here's the third one. God's grace provokes gladness. God's grace provokes gladness. So God's grace proves greater, amen? Greater than our troubles, greater than our suffering. God's grace reserves glory for the weak and for the strong. And finally, God's grace provokes gladness. Now, let's go through this story very quickly. The rest of the story. So we find ourselves left-handed Savior. And it says here, look at the, the second part of verse 15, all right? It says, the people of Israel, we're just going to read through this. I'm going to tell you the rest of the story. And this is where it gets really funny Kind of, some of you will be appalled, funny and gross at the same time. And I get to do it, so that's cool. All right, so the people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. Now, now tribute was basically a huge tax. All right, we think we're taxed a lot, nothing like them. The bulk of everything they had, mainly food, livestock, crops, would now go to the king, and they would do this periodically, maybe once a month, once a year, whatever it is. They had to have all this stored up to be able to give away. And then notice this, it says, in Ehud... Uh, made for himself a sword with two edges. Okay, two edges. Why do you need a two-edged sword? Oh, this is getting us to think. We know sword with, you know, one blade on one side, that's for hacking for both sides. I don't mean to be gross, but the Bible is. So, uh, but for two blades, what the, that's for thrusting. All right, we got that. What happens next? All right, a cubit in length. That's about 18 inches long. Pretty good length. And he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. All right, well, he bounds out on his right side. Why? Because he's left-handed. If you're right-handed, you'd put it on your left side. But notice he does it underneath his clothes. He's trying to hide something. This is getting good, right? And so now notice, now remember, as the Israelites, you may not even know this story partially uh, about Eglon, the big fat guy, all right? But now what's going to ultimately happen is you're going to hear the story and you're going to love hearing it. Okay, so here he says, verse 17, and he presented the tribute to Eglon, the king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. Can you imagine the, the kids laughing? Imagine the, the adults laughing, right? Yeah, Eglon, that fat man, he's a very fat man. How fat was he? He's very fat. All right, so the, this, is, this is how you have to read. Look, I gotta get you into the text. Okay, so this is, this is how they're thinking. The very fat man, right? Verse 18 and when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away his people and he, who carried the tribute. But he himself returned back uh, at the idols near Gilgal, and he said, I have a secret message for you, okay? Oh, man. We see where this is going, right? And he says, and he commanded, silence! This is the king. And all the attendants went out from his presence. Now, I don't know if these guys aren't very bright, but he said, silence, not leave us. He just said, silence, and they left, okay? I don't know if that's code for something, all right, uh, then he says in verse 20, and Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in the cool roof chamber, and Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. Now, I gotta use this as a teaching moment. 
This is not a time to begin to look at this and to begin to do really bad interpretation of Scripture and begin to look at that and say, see, he had the sword, which was going to tear into the king. We have the sword, the word of the Spirit. No, all right, we're not doing that here. In fact, I bet you Eglon wished it was the word of God that he had and not a sword, okay? So, so notice this. He says, and he rose uh, from his seat. Now, he's a very fat man. Okay, picture that. Now, there's something about that very fat man. Is that not funny to you? I mean, look, if if it wasn't funny, if it wasn't jolly, then Santa would be skinny. Okay, so there's something just funny about it. So Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and he thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade. Stop right there. If an 18-inch sword goes in you, you lose the sword and the handle of that sword. You can't find it anymore in the folds of your fat. It's Weight Watchers time, okay? You know that it's time to lose weight. He comes back with no sword. Where's the sword? I don't know, man. I lost it in there somewhere. I thrust it in. I meant it. It's my favorite sword. I brought it out. Nothing left, all right? He says, and the heel also went in after a blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of the belly, and the dung came out. Gross disgusting. We know what that is. Verse 23, then Ehud went out into his porch and he closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and he locked them. Now he's getting away. Now notice what happens right outside of the chambers. The guys who, when he said silence and they thought that meant to leave, they're out there. Verse 24, when he had gone, the servants came and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool room. In other words, surely he's going to the bathroom. Why would they come to that conclusion? Number one, the door is locked, all right? Number two, it smells of dung. Okay, you got that, right? Okay, I'm just telling you, put the two together. Not very bright, but you put those two things together. You figure that you know that something's happening here. So what happens? Some of you look offended. Don't be offended by me. I'm teaching the text, all right? And so, so what, what happens? It says, and they waited till they were embarrassed. You get this as well, right? You know somebody, you go out there, and they're like, man, they've been in there an awful long time, haven't they? I mean, what do you think is going on in there? I mean, did he eat something? What did he eat last night? My goodness. I mean, they're embarrassed, and they're, and, and they're doing this. They're like, come on, man. Light a match. Help us out here. Do something. All right? So they're embarrassed, but when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they, they took the key, and they opened them, and there lay the Lord dead on the floor. Now, verse 26, he had escaped while he delayed, and they passed beyond the idols, and they escaped to Sarah. And when he arrived, he, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemy, the Moabites, into your hand. And they go on, and they have incredible victory. Now, here, here's a question. Let me ask you this. Why is, why is this written as humorous? Why, is this, why did the author feel like, I, I need to be funny here, use some bathroom humor to get people to see some humor here? Again, let me go back to the point. God's grace provokes gladness. When they read this story in the beginning, they would have remembered very clearly what kind of trouble they were in. You ever been in trouble? Let me ask you this. You ever been in trouble that you've gotten yourself into? When you're out of it eventually, do you like any remembrance of what you did when you got into that problem? Our kids are, are like that. Hey, what happened the last time that you did that? Hey, Dad, you know, that, I don't want to talk about that, right? I don't know about you, but there are many things in my life, 
many sins in my life, many periods of sin in my life that I do not want to look back over and relive. I don't want to be reminded of those things again. Do you? Uh, there, it's, I don't take great joy in my sin. However, I do take great joy in the grace that God showed me in the midst of that sin. He wants these folks to rejoice because there's so much to rejoice about. He wants them to look back on a time where, yes, they failed, yes, they were deserving, but yet God's grace is so great that it even provokes joy in them, even when they look back at a very difficult time in their life. What did they have to rejoice about? Well, we, they and we rejoice that God hears us in our affliction. Does it do nothing to your heart to know that you have a God who hears you? That when you pray, he hears and he cares for you? The rejoice in, in the compassion that he shows us, even when we are suffering from our own sin, brings joy to my heart. Because that's the only grace that I know of. I don't know grace that is received from an innocent man. I only know grace that is given to a guilty man. And that's the grace that he gives us. Next, we rejoice that God, I love this, that God is a God who doesn't stand off a long way off with white gloves, but rather he is not afraid to deal with the dirt in your life. He's not afraid to work with the messiness in your life. You're so scared to tell anybody, to talk to anybody about the great problems that are in your life and what you're struggling with. God's not afraid to jump right in there no matter how bleak, no matter how dark, no matter how sinful it is. He is willing to be in it with you. It's amazing to me. And that's something to rejoice about. And so what we find that there are times in our lives, in our past, that we wish to forget all of that sin, sin that we've committed and that we're not proud of. But, but we rejoice in light of those sins and despite those sins, not because we take sin lightly, but because we look back and we see how we were rescued out of our trouble. It's looking back on God's grace that provokes gladness. It's the idea of Psalm chapter 30 and verse 5 that says, Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. It's like this. How, how helpful is this? First of all, it builds up kind of feelings and emotions of joy and worship to God in your heart, doesn't it? As each of you look back, each of us look back at the times that we failed him and we can look back and we see maybe even some humorous ways that he delivered us out of that and we look back and we laugh at it. Why? Because of his great joy, not because of our sin. But there are some of you who are here and you are neck deep into the trouble of your life and here's the difficulty. You can't laugh. Have you ever been in a position and had so much going on, such hardship facing your life that you just couldn't laugh? The miracle here is God, who allows us to mourn in the evening, brings joy in the morning for you and I. So even if you're in the midst of that time of no joy, of no happiness, of no laughter right now, it's coming. It's coming. Now, that's a wonderful story. It's very encouraging, but there is a sadness to the story. The sadness to the story is, is, is really found in chapter four in verse one. L look at that again, if you will. It says, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. They just started the cycle all over again. What a, what a sad part of the story, right? I, I mean, I wish they would forever remain faithful and, and not, not be dis completely disobedient and worship false gods again. See, this is the problem. Ehud is a good um, savior but he's not a sufficient savior. He falls short. First of all, he's 
really kind of a man of deceit. He deceives the king in order to be able to rescue his people. We need a king that will come, a savior that will come, that will not be full of deceit. The Bible says of Jesus Christ, our savior, 1 Peter 2, verse 22, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found on his lips. We need a king, we need a savior that comes and not only rescues from the troubles of our lives and from the Moabites, but we need a king that can come and deliver us from the slavery of sin. That's what the people needed. They keep repeating the same thing over and over again because he could kill their physical enemies, but he couldn't kill their greatest enemy, and that was their sin nature. It needed to be put to death. We needed a savior that could do that, and Jesus Christ is the one who comes and does it. The one who would come the one who would come would not be championed like Ehud was by the people, but he would be despised by them. He would not save his people through victory, but, he would defeat, but, but through defeat and through his death. He would not deliver his people from physical slavery, but from slavery of sin. He would be known for his hands, but not his left hand, but both hands that were nailed on a cross to die for the sins of the world. What we need most is Christ. You say, why is that? Well, guys, look, I'm, all of us are the same. We know every day we're in forgiveness of God, right? Right? We need that. We live this. But where we want to get, God has to forgive and forbear with us every single day. Does he not? In his grace? But wouldn't it be nice? I think our goal is for less forgiving and less forbearing to have to happen on God's account because we're becoming the people that God wants us to be. And the only way to do that is through Christ, our Savior, faith in him. If you've never come to faith in Christ, if you're, if you're even wondering what that is, what that means is this, is that all of us are sinners. All of us have rebelled against God. All of us have done what was right in our own eyes, just like the Israelites have. And we are condemned by God because we've done what was wrong. And we are guilty. And we are guilty and we are deserving of death and death in hell. But God in his goodness hears our pleas and he sent a savior, he sent a leader 2,000 years ago to die on a cross, not a left-handed savior, but a two-handed savior. And he died on that cross so that the wrath that was meant for you would be poured out on him. And the Bible says, if you will repent, that means if you will turn from your sin, if you will recognize what it is, and you will place your whole life in faith in that truth that Jesus Christ came to save you, God will save you and he will change you. That's the good news of the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you and we thank you for this morning. And God, I thank you that we're able to laugh.